This is Energy Voice Out Loud, leading the global energy conversation. I'm Alistair Thomas, and welcome to our podcast. I'm joined by my partners in crime, Ed Reed, our Africa and LNG editor, and digital journalist, Hamish Penman. How are we doing, chaps? Hamish, you weren't with us last week. Can you tell us what you were up to? Uh, I can. I was in Manchester. Sorry, it sounds like I was interrogating you. What were you doing? Why weren't you in our podcast? What time do you call this to come home? <laughs> you made it sound a lot more interesting than it was, but I was in Manchester with my girlfriend for a weekend, a long weekend away. Um, so we did... A lot of indulgent eating, a lot of indulgent drinking. We went around the football museum. We went to a couple of gigs. It was a lovely time. Nice. But it's good to be back, I think. From from your <laughs> hotel, you had an interesting view of a certain building. Oh, is yeah. That, is that right? Yeah. yeah. Straight out of our hotel room, we looked over Strangeways Prison in Manchester. Scenic. Home of the notorious Charles Bronson. Home to many serial killers over the years, given, well, going by its Wikipedia page. It's quite a nice old building in a kind of sadistic way it's a lovely victorian brick and <laughs> is, that, is that how they put it on the hotel website is it okay yeah, it, would, it would make some lovely flats if it wasn't home to to the dodgy uh the dodgier uh, members of society but yeah it was uh that was very nice it was a uh, good to see i suppose that that side of life uh, a bit of history yeah and then went and had a few photos with the smiths had photos as well so it was a, a grand old time oh lovely oh well fantastic Okay, well, uh, let's kick on with with that. Uh, so plenty going on this week with Hamish back. BP's results, the aftermath of Shell's results, and hopefully we'll pick up on all of that. But first, we will go to Hamish for launching a new segment of our show, uh, Penguin Watch. Uh, Hamish, tell us what's been happening. I would quite like for this to become a permanent feature as well. I think that's, it sounds like a, it sounds like it would be a nice thing to start with each week rather than the usual misery that we tend to unfold but yes the, the sounds like a dreamworks picture or something doesn't it <laughs> it does yeah the penguins of madagascar but uh, no sadly not the penguins of madagascar it's the penguins fpso um or the white marlin i suppose more specifically as it is the one that is uh, the vessel that is conveying the fpso halfway across the world um it's currently stopped in the middle of the central north sea is the is the latest on it due to deteriorating weather in the area so you'd imagine it would be a uh, rotten time i suppose to be perched on the side of the vessel getting battered by wind rain seawater and whatever else uh, but that is what six Greenpeace post- uh, protesters are having to endure after they boarded the FPSO just north of the Canary Islands last week, last Tuesday I think it was, um, in what I imagine were far toastier weather conditions. Uh, so four of them have been there since Tuesday last week, um, two more for a few days less than that. Uh, they are activists from climate-hit countries, including the UK and the US, which did make me laugh as I was reading through it. Um, yeah, so targeted Pascalis's white marlin vessel, which is transporting the Penguins FBSO from China to the UK North Sea via Norway. Um, in isolation, there is a really impressive video of the protesters going on board the, the white marlin, but my God, it looks dangerous. It was sent to Ed before we came on that it wouldn't look out of place if it, you'd found out it was the SAS doing a training video of some sorts. It's it's really quite something. Yeah, it's quite impressive, isn't it? Yeah, it is. I mean, I definitely got some cojones on them. I mean, but if it goes wrong, you know, are they going to look to the... The, the good people at Pascalis to help save them. You, do you know what I mean? It does feel a bit reckless on that side as well. But. It does, and however many lives are lost at sea on an average calendar year just due to the dangers of the job without adding further perils into it um, in, in terms of trying to trying to navigate your way around protesters. So it is very, very reckless, but 
you know, if that's what uh, they want to spend their uh, to spend their February, then that's that's their prerogative. But Penguins will be the will be Shell's first new vessel in the UK for thirty years. It will eventually, be stationed around one hundred and fifty miles northeast of Shetland, um, as the heart of a redevelopment of a former tie back to the Brent Charlie Hub. Um, like I said, it is stopping in Norway for some preparatory works uh, to be done at Abel's Yard before it makes the, the final trip across the North Sea. Now, Greenpeace are on there to, to draw attention to the worldwide climate devastation caused by Shell and calling for them to pay reparations towards um, said climate hit countries. Uh, when they boarded, I kind of, uh, I don't know if you guys thought this as well, but I thought the vessel might have to stop due to safety risks or whatever, but it has just carried merrily on its way um, until obviously weather hit. Yeah. And Shell has filed an injunction against two of the Greenpeace uh, vessels in a bid to deter further protesters from joining them. Now, under the terms of the injunction, the Greenpeace vessels, they have an obligation to chart a course that prevents a collision with the White Marlin. Um, But Greenpeace very candidly just got a couple of other vessels to transport the two activists on board that weren't hit by the injunction. So... So it seems an easy way to get around that, to be honest, given the number of ships that are currently in operation across <laughs> yeah. the globe. Um, and yeah, so on the Thursday following Greenpeace's occupation of the SP- FPSO last week, Shell published its annual results, which was another thing they were looking to highlight. Uh, the writing was on the wall for all the majors that they were going to um, be posting some pretty whopping profits. And so it turned out to be, so Shell set a new record for annual pre-tax profits, um, $64.8 billion in 2022. BP, Equinor and the like have done similar uh, more recently. And the protesters on board said um, in in response to Shell's uh, accounts that it's a company causing climate destruction, but not taking any responsibility or paying for that. Our message to Shell's new CEO is to stop drilling and start paying. Yeah, well, uh, indeed. I I guess uh, an interesting thing about the Penguins is that this was meant to be uh, up up and running, I think, in the North Sea. Was it last year they actually had planned to start up? But this was delayed uh, out of China due to, obviously, the COVID lockdown restriction rules over there. Um, so we've got this perfect storm now where it's now kind of arriving in the North Sea, as you say, Hamish, at the same time as Shell's posting these whopping results. Now, you know, I'm sure both would have gotten coverage one way or the other, but it does seem to amplify some of the issues um, around around Shell. Um I, I guess we can get into the, the windfall tax of it all uh, in a little bit. Um, Ed's going to take us through Total's results in a second. But yeah, I mean, I guess to, to draw a line here, just on the on the windfall tax side, you know, I think both BP and Shell were quite keen to highlight that these profits that they're posting are a fraction of the globe. I mean, the UK side of it is a fraction of the global profits. Um, and that's valid. Um, however, you know, when large sections of society are struggling with their energy bills, we're still where we are, you know, it feels like, was it this time last year? No, well, May of last year, there was the initial windfall tax implemented, you know, despite everything that's been done, it, you know, it doesn't seem like the narrative has shifted too much. And you can understand why, in, even in the face of what might look like quite reasoned arguments from the oil companies, you know, you can see why people that argument doesn't necessarily hold much water um, with parts of society. And then, 
you've got the buybacks and you've got the the, the dividends um, coming out um, and you, you can juxtapose that with the taxes paid and then you juxtapose that with the renewables investments and then it kind of gets a bit like, oh, come on guys, are you doing enough? But I, I don't know, what does a real, what does a windfall tax, a, a proper windfall tax look like if you if it's beyond, you know, we're already at 75% of North Sea profits. So, you know, at a certain point, there's going to be consequences of that. But I think we'll stop there. But yeah, so Hamish, we don't know when it's going to arrive in Hargesund, the FPSO, but presumably it won't be too long. Next couple of weeks, I'm guessing, based on how long it's taken it to get from off Africa to, to what, near Denmark now? Yeah, I presume it's just waiting for a weather window at this stage. So it's, it's kind of in the central North Sea, slightly closer to the Danish side than, than the UK coast. So it's made quite quick progress from, well, given it was just north of the Canary or around the Canary Islands just over a week ago. So once the weather clears, I think it'll be at Hargeton in a day or two, probably. I don't think Shell have explicitly said how long these preparatory works are going to take. But I'm sure that's deliberate, yeah. <laughs> yeah keep it under wraps. But I think that um, I'd, I'd be surprised if we didn't see penguins in the UK North Sea this year. That seems like a fairly reasonable timeline, given that how much of the year is still to come. But yeah, just suppose maybe it will be stuck there, uh, stuck there, getting battered by gales for the next for the next uh, ten months, and we'll. So yeah, but I, th- I think it, certainly in terms of getting to Hargeton, it won't take won't take very long at all. It's done the done the lion's share of the trip now, so it's just waiting for this for this last last little bit. Okay, thank you Hamish. That's our Penguins Watch correspondent Hamish Penman and he will be back more to come. Next week with more Penguin Watch. Well, we'll see. We'll see how we get on. <laughs> Still in the North Sea. <laughs> <laughs> okay, uh, let's swing from Penguins to Puyan next with Total Energies. Preconceptions about the pace at which the energy transition would occur have been upended by gas and energy price spikes. Amid this short-term volatility, though, the UK must take steps to follow through with its net zero commitments. In the fourth episode of Net Zero Nudge, Energy Voice, in association with EY, drills into some of the questions around electric vehicles. Everyone seems to be thinking about moving to EVs, but is the UK ready? In this episode, Maria Benson, partner at EY, Neil Isaacson, CEO of Liberty Charge, and Peter Dominey, COO of Tether, talk us through some of the challenges around how to keep this new fleet moving, what we need, what we're getting, and maybe even some ideas about the alternatives. That's Net Zero Nudge, episode four on EVs, coming soon. Okay, Ed, we've talked a bit about Shell. Uh, let's hear a bit about the, the massive profits and massive protests with Total Energies. Is it more of the same? It is, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that's the thing, isn't it? I think uh, the oil companies in general are making money hand over fist, which is uh, is it is it uh, once a, a sort of a nice problem to have, but uh, I think there are probably also sort of those challenges on there. I mean, I think uh, you know talking about the the windfall tax, uh, Total said that it was going to pay, I think, uh, four hundred million dollars for the fourth quarter um, in the UK and and and, and, a, and a billion dollars for, for for the entirety of twenty twenty two. That said, um, it still made an adjusted net uh, income of uh, of thirty six point two billion dollars, uh, which was double what it made in in twenty twenty one. So things are still looking pretty good uh, for the uh, for the French. So it paid something like thirty three billion dollars in taxes, uh, giving it an effective tax rate of about forty one percent. 
which kind of feels par for the course. Uh, but although obviously uh, there is going to be demand for more, and I think you know um, Patrick Puyano did did kind of allow for some degree of a sort of you know greater sort of social contributions. Um, I went on holiday last year in France. We, we we drove across France. Oh, cool! And there was a thing where where where, where Total had had sort of um, artificially lowered prices uh, in order to sort of you know do its bit. And I think you know there's there's a sort of a sense that 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 he might be open that the company might be open to kind of revisiting that. And 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 you know obviously if they are making money in this way, then perhaps they see this as a kind of a way to get a bit of sort of social traction. And I think you know there are there are you know obviously also um, protests in France around 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 some of uh, Total's uh, efforts. There's a long running uh, kind of question around their involvement in in Uganda, for instance. But I think um, maybe slightly more effective in heading it off by by making these kind of very public announcements about you know saying look I'm gonna gonna reduce the the, the price of unleaded or something that's maybe kind of a, a quite a good way to uh, sort of secure a bit of support I, I mean I think there were also some quite interesting big hits though I mean I think you know obviously it was it was a great year for uh, for, for total for, for, for all companies in general but I think also there were some there was some real um, demonstrations of the sort of the challenges that these kind of companies are facing. So I think um, they took. Uh, let me check. It's a fourteen point eight billion dollar impairment on on its Russian assets. Ooh, ooh, ooh. Uh, obviously, kind of coming out of uh, you know Russia's invasion of Ukraine and and, and the sort of the sanctions and challenges that followed. Um, and then I, I think you know we've also seen progress recently on uh, on Mozambique. Puyane was was in Mozambique last week, um, trying to sort of restart the Mozambique LNG project. They've commissioned a report from uh, some sort of human rights expert which they hope to have by the end of the month um and obviously that's a that's a that's a big project that's a sort of a two train sort of millions of tons of lng project which at this point given the demand for lng would would, would really come in handy that said you know it, it looks like the sort of the local challenges haven't gone away the, the 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 security issues have continued the insurgencies continued and i think you know there is that kind of question around um the extent to which the mozambique state can really sort of ensure um the access for companies to uh, to to cabo delgado that that northern province and i think uh, un until that has become a bit clearer I, it, it seems unlikely that it would go ahead despite how much uh, how much how much total and, and then partners would like and then just sort of the third um the third sort of problem area really kind of popped up sort of uh, last month when a, uh, a, a US-based uh, short seller called uh, Hindenburg released uh, research on, on, a, on an Indian conglomerate called Adani, um, which, you know, pointing out a number of shortcomings, reasons and questions about audits, reasons and questions around Adani's uh, free float, um, which I think has been a, a, a big shot across the bows for for the Indian company. And unfortunately for Total, uh, the, the the French company sort of uh, sees Adani uh, as a sort of a, a, a sort of a key local partner. So they've got an LNG uh, import project together. Uh, they've got sort of renewable energy. There's a there's, there's a big kind of green hydrogen plan, which is sort of in the sort of the billions of dollars. Puyano, uh, on announcing the results, said that the the the, the, the hydrogen plan hadn't yet been signed. 
Um, it's something like a sort of a $3 billion project, uh, something like a million tons per year of green hydrogen, I think was was was, was the plan. But obviously, with that kind of question around Adani and and the sort of you know the the Indian outlook, I think there's there's a real challenge there. So I think obviously Total uh, has made extraordinary progress. It's it's making money like crazy. But you know Russia, Mozambique, India, these are some really sort of salutary lessons about the challenges of working in. Should we say emerging markets and 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 and, and even more developed markets? Mm, indeed, indeed, yeah. No, quite a lot going on there, uh, Ed. So. I think maybe to pick up on the windfall tax stuff to start, because that's maybe quite pertinent to us as well. I mean, we broke a story last year, you know, Total Energies to cut £100 million of, of North Sea spend over uh, this fiscal regime um, and the uncertainty around the windfall tax. Quite interesting to get that figure from them. Did you say $400 million? Yeah. Uh, so, you know... All all the energy majors have been pretty, uh, I think, quite transparent in terms of what they expect to pay for for this. But you know, I, I guess again, going back to the fact that these are uh, these global profits, only a fraction of them are made in the UK. But I think when people <laughs> see four hundred million dollars up against their net income of what thirty six billion dollars, um, you know, people do again. It's that emotive argument, isn't it, about how? How 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 well can the industry res- resonate their their arguments against people struggling with their energy bills and 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 then and then you know we also had uh, BP this week you know lots of talk of new energy strategy investment in renewables but still posting you know uh, billions upon billions of of dollars record profits I think it was twenty seven billion so not quite total. Um, but they they rolled back. Uh, you mentioned uh, Russia. Uh, they you know they rolled they rolled back on. BP rolled back on pledges to cut oil and gas production a couple of years ago. Uh, fanfare around them cutting emissions by 40, uh, cutting oil and gas production by forty percent by twenty thirty. That target is now down to around twenty five percent by twenty thirty, and I think ten percent of that is via its divestment of Rosneft, right? Um, of its stake in Rosneft. So, yeah, a, a lot of a lot of issues for the the majors. A lot of them really under the spotlight, and I just I just don't know how. When does it come to a conclusion? You know, are we just going to be here every three months? Uh, you know, and almost certainly there'll be a general election in the UK next year, um, and the, the Labour government, if it does indeed form, um, Labour has been not. They have not been ambiguous here. They're going to tax industry more, and they're going to cut investment incentives around it. So I don't know. Where is that going to leave us in the end? Yeah, I mean, I, I think I think there, there's there's some really interesting questions being asked around sort of uh, a, a worldwide sort of ex- extraordinary uh, windfall tax, isn't there? And I think you know for for companies for countries to say you know we're going to tax uh, particularly those companies headquartered in say London, you know, sort of Shell is obviously consolidated here, BP's here. Um, but but total is not so um, you know you, you can you can see that uh, for the UK government to try and impose a, a, an extraordinary windfall tax on say total would be really challenging. But obviously for 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 for, for companies based here, it's it's, it's going to be more straightforward. But but one feels possibly n- no less unjust. Uh, I mean, I think obviously there there is as as, as we've you know talked about the, there is a kind of a, a, an impact from windfall taxes on investment and and necessarily so. Um, I think you know with uh, so so 
total, just to give you a bit of an idea, I think it's put something like thirty six percent of its of its cash flow into into sort of new investments, essentially, uh, and, and and about the same into into paying back uh, shareholders. And I think you know that there is a challenge where if you have a windfall tax, you know, say say on Shell or say on Total, what does that mean for its uh, its, its its project around the world in in countries where they've not taken that decision i mean i'm thinking about you know nigeria mozambique uganda does it then uh, imperil those projects as well where they where they where they have to the nigerian government for instance uh, obviously shell majorly invested in nigeria if, uh, if 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 money comes out of shell and it doesn't go ahead with projects in nigeria that feels like uh, the uk essentially taking money direct from nigeria and its government and its uh, and its growth plans for a country that that obviously very much needs it. So, I mean, I think I can. Everyone, I, I imagine, can see the appeal when you see these kind of billion dollar numbers, these billion dollar profits. Um, but I feel that there would be a real challenge in in terms of trying to do it justly. I mean, I don't, I don't, I don't know if uh, that's kind of entered the entered the discussion here about uh, about those sorts of plans. Yeah, maybe maybe the very final thing to mention about here is that the, there's an inflationary uh, cycle on the way. So we keep getting told, um, and you know. If if anything was to happen to oil prices or gas prices um, dropping whilst the industry is at a seventy five percent, I don't know whether why, why I'm correlating that with inflation. Um, but if you know if there's anything to happen with oil and gas prices dropping and and there's a seventy five percent tax rate and there's no floor for that at the moment, um, maybe that's where the windfall tax discussion ends when companies are having to lay people off um, because of uh, well because of price pressures. So I think we just need to be a bit wary about how, how this plays out. But uh, anyway, that's really, really dour notes to end on. Um, <laughs> so let's try something completely different up next. The world is in a race to cut emissions, with a number of governments taking steps to try and secure their industries a more competitive advantage. Bigger, Faster, Better aims to evaluate what progress the UK is making and brings in comparisons from around the world to allow us to think through who is making the most progress and what countries could be doing to do better. In the most recent episode of Bigger, Faster, Better, Energy Voice in association with Womble Bond Dickinson drills into some of the questions around onshore wind. Why is progress so slow in England? Are politics the major change are other parts of Europe moving faster. To get some answers to these questions and more, download and listen to the most recent episode of Bigger, Faster, Better. To hear me in conversation with Womble Bond Dickinson partner Chris Tanner and SSE Director for Onshore Renewables, Finley McCutcheon. Bigger, Faster, Better on Onshore Wind, out now. Okay, so uh, yeah, something completely different. Oil rigs in the oil capital of Europe. You'd think the two go hand in hand. Um, but so far, uh, Aberdeen, despite being known as a, the oil capital of Europe, has never actually, to my knowledge anyway, uh, been able to accommodate oil rigs because of, quite simply, water depths. So we've never really had them here. You get diving support vessels and things of that nature. You know, offshore support vessels, you'll see a dime a dozen uh, in the port. But Never really oil rigs. So uh, it's now, however, looking likely that we're going to get some jack-up rigs, nearly three times the size of Northfield Tower. Ed, that's not going to mean anything to you, um, but it's a it's a local landmark. Um, could be on the way to Aberdeen. So the reason for that is we've got the £400 million South Harbour project. I think it has been mooted as maybe not the largest infrastructure project in the UK, um, but certainly one of the largest involving marine infrastructure in recent years. 
Um, lots of uh, talk and certainly plans in place. That we're expecting cruise liners into the city this year, which, you know, an interesting uh, development. But, you know, what about oil and gas vessels? So I spoke to the chief executive, uh, Bob Sanguinetti, um, a week or so ago, and just to get a sense of what are the plans ahead? Because uh, Aberdeen uh, recently missed out on uh, its proposal with um, Peterhead to get green freeport status. So what are you doing? How are you going to set out the next steps? And yeah, they're, they're in talks about with government and what further measures can be taken to make the uh, the sector attractive. But what came out of the conversation that I found the most interesting is they're in talks to get new kinds of vessels in place. So not just jack-up rigs. I'm talking about vessels that could be about 600 feet tall um, if they were to come in. Um, but also FPSOs, um, you know, a, ty- a type of ship that's used to increasingly frequently, like Penguins uh, Hamish, to develop oil and gas fields in the North Sea rather than, you know, new uh, new new uh, platforms installed. So we can see FPSOs and jackups over in Norway and indeed in other Scottish ports like Dundee, Kishore and Cromarty Firth, but not Aberdeen. And the hope is to bring that work in and for the supply chain in with this new South Harbour. Um, now, Cromarty Firth in particular uh, can get this reputation in recent years of being a bit of a graveyard for oil rigs because um, they end up getting stacked there indefinitely as work dries up. Now, in actual fact, there's so much work for oil rigs these days that it's kind of the reverse. But where Aberdeen's going to differ, according to the port of Aberdeen, is that it's just going to be for finite periods of time. So for work over, refurbishment, and then they head on out to their projects in the North Sea, not just for oil and gas, but increasingly, hopefully, uh, for offshore wind development in support of that. So it will be finite periods of time, certainly not a parking lot for oil rigs and that. But we've had a couple of comments, um, you know, uh, is 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 the port big enough to, you know, this is mixed messaging. They're going to have cruise liners and industrial oil rigs, etc. And as well, you know, Cromarty Firth does it all the time. So, you know, it seems to work for them pretty well. And then, you know, questions about is it big enough to do the two? Well, apparently, uh, Keyside, Keyside, 125,000 square meters of laydown area. So that should be enough to uh, have, you know, both cruise liners, jack-up rigs, diving support vessels, etc., all in place at the same time. So, you know, kind of cool, kind of symbolic for the oil and gas capital of Europe. Have they quite literally missed the boat at this point um, for the oil and gas industry? I don't know. Uh, I think, as you say, the offshore wind opportunity is there. But yeah, I mean, I've never been on a jack-up rig. Maybe we can finally make that happen when the first one comes on board. Um, yeah, Hamish, would you be up for that? Definitely. Maybe that long-mooted jack-up rig museum that Aberdeen keeps speaking about could uh, could finally come to fruition. Oh, here we are again. We've not spoken about that enough. That's a real throwback. I know, I know. <laughs> I'd definitely be on for it. I mean, I suppose in, in Scottish terms, anyway, the most visible ones are in Dundee. You come past them as you go in on the train and even on the drive down from Aberdeen when you're going on the A90, you can see kind of the tips of the the legs right over the top of the city. So it would be quite an imposing uh, addition to the Aberdeen skyline. It's, I, I would be quite keen to see what it like, what it was, what it would be like. I'm sure there would be those that would would hate it, but such is the way of things. I don't know what you're talking about. People never complain <laughs> when things like this come along. Uh, yeah, especially not in Aberdeen. <laughs> well, indeed. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I mean, look. Uh, so uh, I think the 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 Rowan Gorilla Seven. I think I'm guessing it's a Valaris, whatever it's called now. But um, that came into Dundee in 2020, and we used that as a wee comparison graphic. 
and it's about 600 odd foot. Uh, whereas the Northfield Tower, which is, in fairness, that is on a hill and elevated, but the, the, the tower structure itself is about 213 feet. So you're talking about rigs that will be pretty substantial when they come in. Is it just bluster? Is it just Bob Sanguinetti? He couldn't say anything because of commercial negotiations. Now, I have heard from other people off the back of this uh, enough to suggest that this isn't just bluster. This is something that we could see materialize in the relatively near future. Um, so fingers crossed that does come to play. At the very least, we're going to get some cool, you know, drone shots of rigs hopefully coming in, you know, and they'll People will love that, right? So, yeah, but I don't know. Aberdeen, you know, oil capital of Europe, it seems only right that there would be um, oil and gas and hopefully offshore wind uh, support vessels coming in, you know? So let's see how that goes out. The last thing I think maybe, I mean, I, I don't know what the security situation is at the South Harbour. I know in the North Harbour, you, you can't, uh, the other harbour, you can't get into, you, you can't access it because, you know, infrastructure and uh, security gates. Um, I'm guessing if oil and gas vessels like that were to show up, um, it would be something of a target for protesters, as we've seen in the last uh, week in various uh, points. Um, so food for thought there, guys. But yeah, we'll see. We'll see. So anyway, I think that is probably enough for this week's episode of Energy Voice Out Loud. We're off to um, get on to our Greenpeace speedboats. Um, but for now, that is it for us. Thank you to Ed and to Hamish for joining me. I've been Alistair Thomas, and thanks for listening. Out Loud is the podcast from Energy Voice, leading the global energy conversation. Bookmark and subscribe to energyvoice.com, sign up to our newsletter and follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter for expert analysis and insight right across the energy sector. Subscribe to Out Loud on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And please do encourage colleagues and friends to listen to Out Loud too. If you've enjoyed it, leaving a rating or review, especially on Apple Podcasts, helps others discover it too. Thank you.